Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is Know It All, the ABCs of education. A platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education, airing every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Of course, you can always listen to the show at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com forward slash know it all, which is where you can also access the chat room during the show and follow Know It All for regular updates. I'm your host, Allison R. Brown, president of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we create education equity plans and promote equity in education in compliance with federal civil rights law. Our website is allisonbrownconsulting.com. There you can read our blog and subscribe to the ABC Know-It-All newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtag KnowItAllABC. My guest, Gordon Lafer, a research associate with the Economic Policy Institute. Dr. Lafer is a political economist and associate professor at the University of Oregon in the Labor Education and Research Center. He is a preeminent scholar on issues of labor and employment. He's the author of The Job Training Charade, Dr. Lafer is also author of a new report released last month entitled, Do Poor Kids Deserve Lower Quality Education Than Rich Kids? Evaluating School Privatization Proposals in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And we're going to talk about it today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lafer. Thank you so much for being on Know It All. Thanks for having me on. So tell me first, why why Milwaukee? Well, I, you know, Milwaukee is one of, they're, they're now a growing number of places actually that think of themselves as kind of ground zero of education reform, but Milwaukee is certainly one of them. It was the, the first place to have a voucher program. It's had education vouchers since 1990. Uh, it has a large and varied charter industry. Um, it's also a highly segregated city. So it, it's certainly one of the places um, historically and given the, the current politics in the state of Wisconsin, that is uh, where there's been a lot of experimentation. And so there was a big debate this year over a bill that was very important for Milwaukee, but I think also is similar to issues being pushed elsewhere in the country. Mm-hmm. And so how did you come to rest on or, or focus on uh, what many people know as school choice or, or um, privatized charter schools? Well, I was really looking at, um, you know, sometimes it's easier to get at an issue by looking at one place where it plays out because you can kind of dig in in more depth. And the Wisconsin legislature this year ultimately didn't pass but debated and, and said they want to take up again next year a bill that would have closed, you know, something probably between 25 and 30 public schools in Milwaukee and replaced them with privately run charter schools. So now similar proposals are being made in a number of other poor cities across the country, but I really wanted to to look in depth both at 
how would this proposal work? What would the likely impacts be on Milwaukee kids? How does what's being proposed for poor kids in Milwaukee compare with what more privileged kids in the in the suburbs get? Um, and who is behind the legislation and how does this fit into any kind of broader agenda? So that's really, it was really that uh, legislation going on in Wisconsin that drew me to look at that along with the history of, of Milwaukee school system. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm in uh, Washington D.C. where charter schools have also seen friendly legislation and received lots of political support. And uh, the rocket ship chain of schools is the focus of your report. And they are new here in D.C. but not new elsewhere. Tell me about rocket ship. So rocket ship, yeah, I spent a lot of time looking at them, and is a model that is being promoted in in other places as well. Not rocket ship and other schools like it, and being promoted only in poor cities. And I would say the the core of the model is a few things. One is um, they shrink the curriculum to a near exclusive focus on reading and math. There are you know there's some attention to other things, but it's primarily only. English and math, and that's the test scores of kids in English and math is what teacher salaries are primarily based on. So the curriculum gets shrunk. There's, for instance, no music classes, no library and librarians, no foreign languages. Um, then there's also uh, the there's very young and inexperienced teachers. Rocketship pays Teach for America to serve as a recruiting service for it. And Teach for America, uh, you know, advertises itself in part as a place where college graduates can go, spend two years teaching, and then move on to graduate school or corporate employment or something like that. So last year, Rocketship had 30% uh, turnover in a year, average across all its schools. Um, then the, the third is that they use technology to replace teachers. So right now, students spend one quarter of their day in the model Rocketship school sitting in a teacherless room, a computer lab, where they're on software for reading and math is developed based on video games. So it's like, you know, you need to answer a math problem to make your way through the forest or something like that. <clears throat> and I guess the last thing is that Rocketship is, uh, like a lot of these companies, it's a privately owned company. It really blurs the line between what's profit and what's not profit. It itself is nonprofit, but it has a lot of venture capital money behind it, which then makes money both on the technology, which is for profit, and on the real estate deals. Um, and it, because it aims to expand very quickly, has very ambitious growth plans, it has designed the education model in part in order to make a profit, uh, uh, you know, get net income out of each school to fund its expansion elsewhere. So for all these reasons, it's, you know, what you end up with is a, a very narrow curriculum taught by inexperienced high turnover teachers and to a significant degree, teachers being completely replaced by technology. And you you found, and I want to quote, you say that charter privatization proposals are driven more by financial and ideological grounds than by sound pedagogy. What does that mean? Who's driving this train? Well, the, you know, the the biggest proponents of this is not, and where the where the Wisconsin legislation came from, but it's true in other states too. It's not parents, it's not teachers, it's not students, it's not social groups. It's the biggest corporate lobbies in the country, which are the most powerful lobbies in the country of any kind: the Chamber of Commerce, American Legislative Exchange Council, American uh, Americans for Prosperity. Uh, it's the the big business lobbies are really the drivers behind this. And when you look at who is making money off of this, 
it is now almost, I believe every investment bank, every major investment bank on Wall Street now has a separate division for educational investment. There's a huge industry of education technology. There's a lot of venture capital money. There's a lot of hedge fund money. And this is partly why it's a bipartisan issue. There are both, uh, there's both Republican money and Democratic money. There's a lot of, Demo- you know, there's an organization called Democrats for Education Reform, which is, you know, it doesn't sway everything, but it's fairly powerful within the Democratic Party, which is really Democratic Wall Street money and Democratic Silicon Valley tech and venture capital money, which is pushing this education reform because those industries have a lot of money to make off of it. And they, they people will say, you know, there are conferences now where high finance gets together with education technology companies and with state and local policymakers. And they say, look, education is almost three-quarters of a trillion-dollar industry in the United States, and it's almost, but it's not privatized enough. Like, we can make a lot more money. There's a lot more money to be made here. Um, so that's, you know, that's, there are a lot of advocacy groups. There are a lot of people involved in debates about education, but when you look at what legislation tends to pass, it tends to be the legislation that has the backing of the big corporate lobbies and especially the financial, different varieties of the financial industry, which are really making money off of this. Mm-hmm. I wonder. I wonder if we could talk about how how this happens. I want to go back to something you said earlier about the fact that teacher salaries are connected to the these scores of their students on reading and math tests. Can you talk about how the lobby justifies replacing traditional public schools with these privatized charter systems and and using tests? and standardized tests as means to do that? Yeah, I mean, I would say um, in some ways in this story, standardized testing and the Common Core play a function similar to what slum clearance was for the real estate industry in the 1960s and 70s, which Mm -hmm. is they use the tests to declare either whole districts like they did in New Orleans and are starting to do in Nashville and Memphis or big chunks of districts like they wanted to do in Milwaukee um, persistently failing. And then they say the answer is private charter schools. So one of the, I mean, there's many problems with this. Like one problem is even if you just look at test scores, um, a majority of test scores, more than 50% of test scores is explained by poverty. And so if you compare, you know, if you're looking at poor cities, of course, they're going to have low test scores. And in all the legislation that I've seen, they don't, they have some measure of, of trying to account for that, but they don't really account for the differences in poverty in an in a adequate way. And so it's very easy to say, yeah, here our school outperformed the average of the Milwaukee public school system or the Memphis public school system or Newark or Washington, D.C., because you're comparing to a system that is filled with kids from, from hard-off families and also where the, the public school system itself has been starved of the resources to serve them. So I think mm-hmm. testing functions in that way, but there's also a second problem with it, which is the definition of education as just being what are your reading and math scores. And obviously, if you you know if I had a kid in a system where they didn't learn you know they didn't know how to read and write and count, I would say first teach them how to read and count, and then we'll you know then we'll worry about everything else. I understand why if parents feel like their kids aren't getting that from any school, including public schools, they'd want something that gives them that. But if you look at what um, wealthier parents, more privileged parents, what are the schools that they go to? Those are schools that have libraries and librarians that have guidance counselors and other kind of you know social services that have a broad curriculum that includes you know music and art and, and 
and drama and uh, sports and all that kind of stuff that has um, veteran teachers who are really making teaching a career and who know the community and know the kids and maybe knew their siblings before them. Very, very different from the rocket ship model. And so what we have, you know, in Milwaukee, the, the, this whole idea, but and rocket ship in particular, is heavily promoted by the Milwaukee Chamber of Commerce. And their lobbyists called it the best of the best. But it's nowhere in the suburbs. So if you have a system where what's being promoted as the best of the best for you know, poor kids in cities is something that is unacceptably substandard for more privileged kids in the suburbs. That's, uh, you know, particularly in a year when we're marking the, the an anniversary of uh, Brown v. Board of Education, that's now saying, okay, we have two different definitions of what a quality education is. And the definition for poor kids is something that's not even on the chart for wealthy kids. So that mm-hmm. seems like a fundamental problem to me. Yeah, yeah. And... I I want to read another quote from the introduction to your report, which is, um, above all, this report questions why an educational model deemed substandard for more privileged suburban children is being so vigorously promoted, perhaps even forced on poor children in Milwaukee. And, And it sounds to me like we are very much talking separate and unequal, which was the standard, the legal standard before Brown versus Board 60 years ago. Um, and I wonder if you would just say a bit, you made the point that this new focus doesn't include families and communities and uh, really is being driven by corporate dollars. Will you just talk about who's left out of that? Well, I, I mean, here's one of the big ways I would say is that schools like Rocket Ship are not accountable to the public. They don't have... Um, they're not subject to the, a publicly elected school board, and their own board is a corporate board that's based in that it's controlled by people in their corporate headquarters in California. So, um, the the parents and the local community don't have any way to vote to say, you know, we want we want to make sure you have this kind of equipment in the gym, or we want to make sure you you do something to be able to have long, you know, more experienced teachers or something like that. But you know, more more importantly, it's like you know, it's not. Education is a huge issue, and it's a big country, so you can find people, including parents, on every side of every debate. But when you look at who is it that's really driving the legislature, you know, who are the people that are advocating it, that have real political power, that have real money being contributed to campaigns or being contributed to think tanks that, that pump out the papers justifying this, um, it's all the corporate lobbies. And you know, I, I would say you know, when, when you look at the different models of education, one of the things that struck me so much is I have a, a daughter in second grade in public school, so I've lately, you know, what my my closest experience is the young ages of kindergarten, first and second grade. And in those ages, you know, what you want your teacher, a teacher to see of your kid is not just, you know, do they, can they read and write, but also social and emotional things. You know, who's shy and needs to learn to speak up or who's scared and needs to learn to stand up for themselves or who has too much anger that they need to learn how to master or whose attention is in four places at once and they need to learn how to focus or who's a loner or a bully and needs to learn how to work in groups. And all of those things, which is partly about not what you learn but how you learn, but also about how you develop as a person, is not included in the test. And the more you... um, make teachers focus only on test scores, which is what you do when you tell them this is what your salary is going to be based on, the less time they can spend on anything like that. And certainly when you have 
23 and 24 year olds with no experience, you know, they don't have experience in, in that kind of thing. And the truth is that kids from poor families and families um, that are in neighborhoods where there may be all kinds of uh, instability or trauma or chaos in their lives at home, much more than privileged kids need that. They need a small class with a mature adult that has a stable relationship with them that can see them as a person and not just as something that's going to get a score that's going to determine my salary. And so, the, you know, it's like the kids who need the most get the least of these things that are not really captured in test scores. Mm-hmm. And can you, just from an economic standpoint, can you speak to the 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 back end of that. So when we take the time and money and resources to invest in those small classroom settings that are healthy and nurturing for all children and really provide interventions necessary for for children that they need versus warehousing children this way and teaching them to attest and not really uh, being very forward-thinking in terms of their uh, future development, what is the comparison in in economic outputs of those two different programs? Well, I, I, um, you know, I can't give you a statistical answer to that, and I, I don't want to, you know, I try to be careful to not say certain things are proven in ways that aren't proven. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, when parents, when pri- more privileged parents want their kids to go to a school that looks nothing like rocket ship, it's not because they're stupid or mistaken. And that, you know, what their kids get out of that is not just more knowledge, but um, more self-confidence, more social skills, more ability to interact in society, and also more um, more critical thinking. Like, you know, one of the things, and there's been a, studies of this, there's another thing that doesn't show up in test scores. When you have librarians, part of what librarians do is they help kids learn to enjoy reading and make reading be a pleasure instead of a chore because they know, oh, yeah, you, you're, you know, whatever. You're interested in rockets. Here's a book on rockets, like a book that the kid would never find by themselves. But they also help, especially like middle and high school students, become critical thinkers because they show them books or online sources that deal with the same subject they're, they're looking at in class, but from a different author and a different point of view so that the kids become, you know, active evaluators of, of information and critical thinkers. And that's, you know, I, I can't tell you here's a study that shows, therefore, you're going to make $10,000 a year more, but I think it's intuitive and common sense, both that you would be in position to get better jobs and also just, you know, that your your life would be richer. You'd be more equipped to handle all kinds of things in life. So your, your um, report is officially focused on Milwaukee and uh, rocket chip is a, a key part of that examination. But how do your findings translate to national school reform conversations? Well, there are there are two things that the corporate lobbies, by which I mean the Chamber of Commerce, the American Legislative Exchange Council, the network of, of local corporate-funded think tanks that are affiliated with the American Legislative Exchange Council, two things that I think to people who don't know it are quite shocking that they're pushing in a number of states. One is to try to take over whole school districts by using testing, and this is what I was talking about before. Their model is New Orleans. New Orleans, the recovery school district in New Orleans as of this coming September will be the first school district in the country that's 100% charter. Now that happened because, 
after Hurricane Katrina, the Bush administration refused to give money to reopen public schools, but gave $45 million to open charter schools. So they're now all charter. But in the charter industry, in the venture capital and hedge fund industry, they say New Orleans is our model. And the way they're going to do it in other places is obviously is not by hurricanes, but is by standardized testing. So if you look, for instance, at Detroit, where the school system is um, is now under the control of the state because Detroit is bankrupt, they're talking about, over some period of time, trying to transfer all of Detroit into something where either it would be all charters or it, you know every individual school would be offering online courses that would be offered by mostly by for-profit companies, and a kid a kid could take you know they would basically do away with the idea that there's a publicly elected school board that exercises control over the schools. And they're looking at this in Detroit, they're looking at it in Tennessee and Wisconsin um, and a number of other places around the country. But the second thing is that they're looking for ways to substitute technology for teachers, partly because the profit margins are so huge. And the reason the profit margins are so huge is that whatever it costs to produce a software program, once you've produced it, it doesn't cost anything more to sell it to 100,000 kids than it does to the first 1,000. Mm-hmm. So whether they, you know, and, and Alec is the, the con- corporate lobbies push bills that say online classes have to be paid the same dollars per student as regular classes. But even if they're paid 80% or 90%, the profit margins are huge. And so, again, there's a, there's a push to use technology in all kinds of ways that nobody has imagined and to take everything that you can think of and say, we can replace the person with an application for that. And uh, again, for rich kids, they still want, you know, rich people still want their kids taught in small classes in person. None of them have, uh, they have technology in the classroom, but none of them replace teachers with technology. But in poor cities, this is the push. And it, you, because it's, because uh, you get rid of so many teachers, they can both save money, like spend less per kid, and still make a lot of money for the venture capital or investment banks or hedge funds that own uh, that own the technology products. So these are things that are playing out in Milwaukee or being attempted in Milwaukee, but really are being advocated around the country, but again, only in poor cities. And it really is a, a you know, separate but unequal system, except instead of being explicitly based on race, it's based on geography. Hmm. And it's not happening slowly, as you said. It's happening whole districts at a time. And, you know, with my my equity hat on, I am um, – it is it is frightening. It is infuriating. And uh, I'm wondering whether um, and how in the school reform debates and conversation – what is expected will happen to to these children who end up in these schools that aren't serving them holistically? Uh, is I there an expectation? Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know. And you know, obviously, there's a lot of people involved in this debate. But you know, I I assume that for some people who are some of the money people behind it, they're not really thinking about that. They're thinking, what is our return on investment going to be? And how many kids can we sell this to? You know, one one of the things that I think is they still have to work out, you know, right now, charter schools in general uh, do a tremendous amount of skimming of the population. Um, and this is in, an, in a number of ways. Some of it is poverty. Um, 
some of it is, um, you know, in, in the case of Rocketship, they require parents to sign a contract promising to work 30 hours a year as volunteers in the school for their kid to go to school. Well, so the five or 6,000 kids in Milwaukee who are homeless will never go to Rocketship, and all the people who don't, re- who don't live with families where maybe don't live with their parents, don't live with families that are able to make that kind of promise won't go to those schools. But they also, Rocketship has 5% of its kids who are special needs compared to 21% in Milwaukee. So, you know, if they take over the entire school system, some, something is going to happen to those kids. The tragedy that's already happening is the more the, the private charter sector expands, the more money is taken out of the public system. And what you end up with is what's already happening is the kids who have the have the most serious need, who require the most resources, are being left back in the public system, which is having its ability to serve them shrunk and shrunk every year. So, you know, that's already, a, I feel like, a, a disastrous mistreatment of those kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the, the scariest pieces that I read in your report was about the deliberate um, deliberate inequity written into the law for treatment, accountability treatment of charter schools. And um, I'm wondering if you would just talk a little bit about the the school accountability bill that uh, I think Luther Olson drafted um, this year and some components of that. Sure. Yeah, Luther Olson is the chairman of the Senate Education Committee in Wisconsin, and he, the most ambitious version of of this kind of legislation was a draft proposal of his. Um, and one of the things it did is it said, if a school is declared failing three years in a row, it has to be closed. They said, for Milwaukee, we're already going to count them. If they were in the bottom 5% of the state uh, for in the last two years, we're already going to count those as their first two strikes against them, even though that was based on a system that took no account of poverty whatsoever. So a Milwaukee public school could be forcibly closed after one year. By contrast, it says charter schools, their grades, their performance can't count for their first five years, which means even if a charter school got an F every year in a row, the earliest it could be closed is after eight years of operation. Mm. So there's two completely different streams of, you know, it's called accountability, but it's not equal accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it also does not adequately account for differences in poverty or differences in, in um, special education students between the schools when comparing um, what you know how they're going to be evaluated. And it says, you know, one of the other things, and this may be you know, relevant in other cities too, you know, within the Milwaukee public school system, there, like every place, there are good schools and bad schools, but there are some excellent schools that are public schools in Milwaukee. And in fact, there's a number of them that even by test scores have outperformed every single one of the privately run charter schools that are in the city. Now, you would think, oh, well, if we have failing schools, low-performing schools, in the, and why don't we look to the high-performing public schools in the city as models and either say, let's try to replicate that or let's get their principal or their senior teachers to come over and give advice to this place. Under, under uh, Chairman Olson's bill, it said when a school closes, it can only be replaced by a, a privately run chain of charter schools. Mm. So you would have high-performing public schools prohibited from expanding or replicating themselves, while much lower-performing schools would be encouraged to expand because they're privately run. 
So in in all kinds of ways, there were you know there was a series of um, inequities and imbalances built into that bill that I think does reflect um, you know does not reflect educational research, does not reflect parents' experience, does reflect the agenda of Alec and and other corporate advocates who really just want to replace the public system with a privatized school system. You know, there is similar legislation at the federal level that at this point doesn't have a tremendous amount of support. It has Republican-only support, but um, is very similar to what you've described there in Milwaukee and is certainly something to watch because at this point it's simply a partisan message bill, but, um, you know, given where states and localities are going with uh, the the public charter or privatization of charter schools and accountability systems like the ones you've just described, it, it, um, it may very well be more than just a symbol later. Um, and, you know, one thing that you point out is the irony of this um, vigorous focus of some of these corporate entities on the, the moral issue of ensuring access to quality education for, for children in under-resourced communities. Will you talk a little bit about that, that irony? Sure. Um, I mean, first of all, I think, you know, just that, that we're supposed to um, we're supposed to think that the biggest corporate lobbies in the country are just pushing, you know, pushing so vigorously on this agenda just out of altruistic concern with poor kids getting an education. And we're supposed to believe that the that so much money coming into nonprofit schools from the technology industry and the venture capital industry who stand to benefit from this is just like, oh, it might have gone to a children's hospital, but we really care about kids, so we gave it to charter schools, I think is... You know, it's like, you know, we're all adults. Let's not fool each other about what's going on. But, mm-hmm. you know, what the, the, the most, for me, the most troubling kind of irony is that for the most part, if you look at education research uh, across the country and across many decades, I think what most education scholars would say is that the single most important thing impacting the quality of education is poverty. And the second, the second most important thing in, in terms of what happens inside the school is class size. Right, that you can have good and bad teachers, good and bad models, but everybody does better if you have 18 kids in a class as opposed to if you have 30 kids in a class. Well, the big corporate lobbies have supported state budgets in many states that include really dramatic cuts to education that make it impossible to have small class size or other kinds of things you'd want in school. And they have also been opposed to the minimum wage, opposed to living wage, opposed to the right to paid sick leave, supported cuts in food stamps, um, made it harder to get unemployment insurance. Basically, everything that would enable poor families to work their way out of poverty, these lobbies have been against, and then have also supported cuts to the school system. So I think the irony in some places is that you see these same lobbies doing things that I would say create the conditions of failure by, by keeping people in poverty and by not allowing schools to do the things that are, not giving schools the resources to do the things that are most important to helping kids, and then coming in and say, hey, there's a crisis, the schools are failing, we better do this thing over here, which is our preferred policy solution. I mean, for, I would say you can't be, you, you know, you can't go into a poor city and say, I'm against the minimum wage, um, but I care about poor kids' education. It just doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't line up with what the national research shows, the way things work, and I think what common mm-hmm. sense would lead you. Yeah. 
Uh, and I think, you know, many of us who are not economists or um, or economic analysts feel um, that maybe that, that dissonance makes sense somewhere. <laughs> and so I think, I, I guess my question is whether, sure, you know, it doesn't make common sense to make the argument that anti-poverty measures uh, don't fit within our budget or our financial rubric, whatever that might be as a, as a corporate entity, but um, funding charter schools does in terms of our bottom line and the, the bottom line of the nation and how we fit in that puzzle. Um, is it, it, are my instincts as a, as a non-economist correct that common sense actually does match with economic sense too? Uh, I, I think it does. Yes, I think you know. I don't. I think people should not, um, uh, you know, should not be fooled into thinking, you know, oh, that that there's some world of expertise in which in which you know your common sense is wrong and things that don't seem like they add up really do add up. And you know, by the way, I would say the the policies that they're promoting um, on an on a piece by piece basis, many of them are broadly unpopular. You know, I think there's a certainly both uh, ballot initiatives and polling has shown there's very broad bipartisan support for things like small classes and for things like um, having kids be taught by, you know, trained, experienced human beings rather than by uh, computer applications. And even in Wisconsin, the uh, Wisconsin Policy Research Institute, which is one of the corporate-funded think tanks that's uh, in the network affiliated with ALEC, they, they push this very aggressive vision of doing away with public control of the school system and having a lot of teachers replaced with technology. And they did a poll and they said, uh, you know, the public doesn't support this. You know, the, the public uh, doesn't want their kids being taught online. And their conclusion was the public really doesn't understand the problem with education. I think, especially in Milwaukee, where there's been 25 years almost of experience with every variety of voucher, private school, charter school, everything you can think of, what makes more sense is to think, well, maybe people actually know what they're talking about after all this experience. And when parents say, parents in poor cities say the same thing that parents in rich suburbs say, which is, well, I want my kid taught by an experienced individual who I respect and not by a computer, and I want them in small classes. There's, they're not fools. They, that the common sense is reliable. So, uh, you know, we we talked a lot about rocket ship, and um, you know, here in D.C., rocket ship is brand new. Um, they they have n- not yet opened their first campus, um, but they have been given uh, a very strong uh, charter by the the public charter school board here in D.C. and uh, KIPP and um, Basis have a stronger foothold here in D.C. and feel very similar in their approach. Is Rocket Ship the only game in town as far as Milwaukee charter schools? No, there are a bunch of other charter schools uh, in Milwaukee. Although it's the, I think it's the only national chain that's in Milwaukee. Um, but what's what I think is important um, about Rocket Ship is that if you know if you the, this direction the corporate lobbies are pushing in, it doesn't have to be rocket ship per se, but the idea of using technology to replace teachers 
is uh, one of the central things that corporate lobbies are pushing in states around the country. And I'm sure there will be, you know, Rocketship right now is kind of the darling of the venture capital industry and the education technology industry. But it's still small, although it has very ambitious growth plans. And there could well be, you know, others. I'm sure there are other schools doing similar things. Um, but that's so why I looked at Rocketship, but I was really concerned not so much about them as a company, but about the model that is embodied in them, which is being pushed in, again, in poor cities around the country. And, you know, when they, there are these conferences now where, uh, you know, investment banks and venture capital get together with school policymakers and technology companies, and uh, they just say, we have, you know, whole ecosystems of investment lying before us to move into. And all of that is about technology. So, that's what, you know, in places like uh, Washington, D.C. Um, and other poor cities, I think what we have is a model of education that is being rolled out in places where the, the population is, does not have the political power to demand something that, is, that people in the suburbs demand, right? They're not saying we're going to put rocket ship in the rich parts of, of Maryland or Virginia. They're saying we're going to put it in the poor city. And it's part by saying, well, things are so bad there already that our standard will be better than that, which is implicitly is saying you don't have to meet the standard that kids in the suburbs have to meet. We have a lower standard of what, what's considered success for your kids. And it's also going to a place where they think we can force this on these people because they won't have the political ability to resist it, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And even within D.C., the, the wealthiest ward in D.C. has no charter schools um, and uh, – um, the the most most vulnerable communities in, in in DC have the most, and so there has to be some correlation there. What do you think this means for educators who work in these schools and find themselves having to espouse this lesser model of instruction for for the nation's most vulnerable students? Well, I you know, rocket ship most you know largely staffs itself with Teach for America. Um, students who are, I, I don't know, I don't know how, I don't know what they think. I think for career educators and for long-time educators, uh, all of the moves in this direction is very troubling. The idea that you could replace them with technology, um, and the idea that you should only focus on, you should only care about test scores, the idea that you're not going to have the resources to, to kind of teach the whole kid. I think is very troubling. And you, you see all kinds of polls by where the number of teachers who are either quitting or saying, you know, if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't go into this job or I wouldn't encourage my kid or my niece or nephew to go into this job, which is not, and they're not saying that because of pay or benefits. A lot of times they're saying it because they say, you know, I feel like I can't do this job at the professional standards that it deserves. Like I can't do right by these kids when I have so many kids in my class and I'm starved of resources or I'm forced to focus on the test. So uh, I think it's a very troubling time for educators. And I think the agenda of the, the technology industry and all the high finance behind it, in a way, I mean, not to be too dramatic about it, in a way is to say, well, soon maybe we'll see the last generation of real school teachers because mm-hmm. everything is going to be made into technology, which, by the way, is not, there's no research basis for moving in that direction. Um, At the high school level, for instance, um, studies show that the grades that kids get in high school from their teachers, the letter grades, are a better predictor of college success 
than their performance on standardized tests on the SAT or the ACT. And partly that's because when a teacher gives a grade, they can take into account things like how creative are you, are you a critical thinker, how much diligence do you have, how much discipline do you have. I mean, all kinds of things go into a letter grade given by a teacher that aren't captured in an exam. And so there's no, there's, there's no research reason to say, oh, the country would be better off if we went to a system where everything was digitized, digital tests and digital teaching. It's just being pushed in that direction because there's so much money to be made off of it. Hmm. And with with rocket ship expanding and, and charters generally expanding, it feels like we've re- reached a, a tipping point. Is it too late at this point to dial it back? I don't think so. I mean, again, I don't want to I don't have a crystal ball. I don't want to pretend to know things I don't know. But I think it's, um, you know, on the one hand, there's very powerful forces pushing this. But as I said, it is broadly unpopular, uh, a lot of the elements of this. And there have been a number of places in the country where there have been parent rebellions against standardized testing, where parents have opted their kids out and said, I'm not going to send my kid to school on the day when there's a standardized test because I don't think, I think it's going to be used to close my school or punish teachers who shouldn't be punished or I don't want the kid to have to spend four weeks out of their out of their year preparing for and then getting over the test. So there's a small but growing movement of that. And, you know, it's not just in the places you might suspect. I mean, one example that struck me is uh, Florida. The state of Florida has small class sizes written into its constitution, like 18 kids in kindergarten to third grade. I think then it goes to 24. In 2010, the legislature wanted to, to loosen those And because it was in the Constitution, they had to go to the voters. So they put it out as a ballot measure for the voters to vote on. And the legislature approved it by 65%, and the voters rejected it by 55%. Now, this is Florida in 2010, which was the Tea Party wave election, when they elected Mm -hmm. a very conservative governor, a very conservative legislature, which I think means, uh, by my calculation, several hundred thousand people must have gone to the polls thinking something like, you know, I don't like government, I don't like taxes, I don't like Democrats, I don't like teachers' unions, but I want my kid in small classes. And that's one of the things that I guess is one of the reasons that I don't think it's hopeless, is that when people have a chance to vote on the issues of small class size and what is a quality education, I think virtually everybody wants the same thing for their kid, and that this agenda that's being pushed by people who are going to make money off of it is not popular. So in a way, there's a you know there there's force on both sides. So I don't know what's going to happen. I do think it's a it's a scary time. I would say just as a parent, um, but I don't think it's I don't think it's been decided one way or the other. Mm-hmm. So so what can we do? How do we join the, these small movements that are happening around the country? You know when when I think of of the level of instruction that is provided in small private schools, the expensive private schools here in D.C. and elsewhere, um, and even the the most successful public schools and, um, you know, the, the value that is placed on on creativity and exploration and asking questions and um, uh, generally allowing for childhood, natural childhood, healthy childhood development, uh, child development in in the course of um, a normal childhood, and what we see more and more that's being, as you said, even forced on um, on poor children, and uh, you know, couple that with 
the the our increasing reliance on police in schools and police equipment in schools we're creating these uh schools that are uh, not at all nurturing they're not healthy environments and um we wouldn't at all expect that of of other children um and so what what is it that that parents and community members and even educators whose instincts tell them that this movement isn't this movement for more charters and for more privatization isn't inclusive and it isn't in the best interests of the children all of our children what is it that we can do I, you know, I, the, the reason that I don't have a simple answer for you is, I, as far as I know, there are or, there are different organizations in at the local level, um, in different places. Um, one of the best sources for information that I know of is is um, the website of Diane Ravitch, R-E-V-I-T-C-H, who I'm sure you you know well, um, mm-hmm. and she's often had information about local organizations. I know there's a big organization in Pittsburgh. I know there's an organization in Seattle, I know you know there's a variety of places where parents and community groups have come together. There is a big organization in, in uh, Milwaukee called Schools and Communities United, I think is what it's called. Um, I'm not sure what there is in, in Washington, D.C. or in a lot of other places. So um, I guess if, it was, if I was someplace and I felt I'm the only one here, I might try looking at Diane Ravitch's website or emailing her and saying, hey, is there an organization in my community I don't know about? Um, there's not a national place to point people to, unfortunately, that I know of. Mm-hmm. And I'll just give um, one resource, another, and I think Diane Ravitch is a great resource, and uh, Dignity in Schools Campaign is another and is a national coalition of of uh, youth advocates and organizations that are really focused on bringing dignity back to schools and especially for uh, students who have historically been underrepresented in in uh, success tracks in in education. Um, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Dr. Gordon Lafer is an associate professor at the University of Oregon in the Labor Education and Research Center. He has written a very important new report about the proliferation of school choice and school reform efforts in Milwaukee. The title of that report is do poor kids deserve lower quality education than rich kids evaluating school privatization proposals in Milwaukee, Wisconsin? To read the report and for more information, go to the Economic Policy Institute website at www.epi.org. Gordon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Audience, you are now officially certified know-it-alls about who really gets higher quality education and why. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at AllisonBrownConsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. 
Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC.